0: Let's bind our hearts together over God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning is in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 47. If you're using a Bible in the back, you'll find this on page 910. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. whom the Lord our God calls to Himself, and with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and awe. and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved.
1: All right, well, let's pray together before we get into God's word. Father, you say in your word in Isaiah 66, verse 2, that this is the one to whom you will look. This is the one to whom you will direct your attention and your gaze. The one who is humble and contrite before you and who trembles at your word. We know that in this moment, we desire your attentiveness and we desire your presence and work among us. And so we pause to ask for your presence to be with us as we now actively, intentionally, before your word, humble ourselves with an eager anticipation to receive from your word what you would have to speak to us this morning. We pray for an openness and a receptivity and a love for the truth, which would cause us to seek to conform our lives more and more uh, unto what you have revealed for our everlasting joy and for your greater glory. And so draw near to us this morning, God. We, we tremble as those not who are afraid of you, but who deeply reverence and revere your word and desire that it would have an effect on us and change us and impact us and shape us and conform us more into the image of the word himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. So draw near to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, well, as uh, we get into this new sermon series this morning, we're going to be spending several weeks looking at Acts chapter 2 and these things that the early church were devoted to um, as a new community of believers and what we can learn from them. And I've got some really, really good news for you this morning as we kick off this series. The good news is this. The number of people in the United States who call themselves Christians, is shrinking. Why do I call this good news? The truth is, Christianity is not collapsing. Christianity is being clarified. Cultural Christianity is dying. And we should say, good riddance and seek to expedite its quick passing. What do I mean by cultural Christianity? I mean that Christianity, which as long as it's in your cultural favor to believe and practice, and not even necessarily practice, just in name only, call yourself a Christian. Well, that's going away. And I would encourage us this morning to be eager to see its demise pass swiftly. And how can we do that? How can we play our part in the death of cultural Christianity? Well, I want to argue that one of the ways we can do this is by devoting ourselves afresh to the true, costly pursuit of Christ as believers committed to the imperfect but essential local church. Not only will this help distinguish true Christianity from almost Christianity, but it will renew and revive the church of Jesus Christ. It will result in a stronger, more sustainable, more identifiable, and I think more united Christianity. It will make congregations more mature and effective because those who remain will be all in, invested, and committed. Brett McCracken, a new writer who's recently published a book called Uncomfortable about Pursuing Authentic and Lasting Christian Community, writes the following. He says, quote, The Western world doesn't need a more muddled, confused, I love Jesus, but not the church, Christianity made up of a million different opinions and to each his own permutations. Rather, it needs a true, unified, and eloquent witness to the distinctively alternative vision for the life that Jesus offers. End quote. And that's written by a guy who's about 33 years old, in the millennial camp, who you would typically think would be most unlikely to say such things. So over the next several weeks, what we're going to do is explore this true, unified, eloquent witness to a distinctly alternative vision of life that Jesus offers right here in this early church community in Acts chapter 2, with the goal being to recalibrate ourselves to what Jesus wants us to be And do as his bride. Now some of you might be thinking, Why a series on the church? I mean, are we under budget and need, you know, kick the tithing up a little bit? You know, running short on nursery volunteers. No, actually that's not the reason. We are after your joy, and we are after God's glory, and we are after the spread of the gospel. If you notice what happened as a result of the Holy Spirit's work in this early church community, it's immensely encouraging and incentivizing and motivating for us to pursue greater conformity to the vision of the church laid out for us in the New Testament. Notice in verse 46, this was not a sad life for them. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. There was a general spirit of joy that permeated this community, and that's what we're after in this series is a greater joy in Christ. Also, this community life was extraordinarily attractive to outsiders. See that in verse 47? Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the church was evangelistically effective in the extreme, I would say, and in a very unique, not-repeated way. That is, every day the Lord was adding to their number new converts. So my appeal to you is that if you care about Jesus, you will care about people knowing Jesus. Right? And if you care about people knowing Jesus, you have to care about his church because his church is the vehicle through which people come to know Jesus. At the heart of every Christian is Christ. But at the heart of Christ is the church. And therefore, if a Christian is to share in the heart of Christ, they will love and be devoted to his church, since that's what he loves and cares about. Now, just for the sake of reminder, I don't want you to at all be under the illusion that your pastors are not incredibly excited, thankful for the many evidences of your devotion to the local church that already exist among you. And I don't want to start this series without acknowledging that. I think that would be unfaithful. So let me give you some examples of the things that just I made a list of, of ways in which you are devoted to the local church. You care for and encourage the leadership of the church. You faithfully serve. You are humble and supportive. You attend Sunday morning services, Sunday school, Lord's Supper, prayer meetings. You're involved in small groups. Some of you are leaders of them. The others serve on this worship team and help us lift our voices in our heart and our hearts to, to Jesus every Sunday. You serve on the soundboard like our brother Josh is in the back or up in the AV room like several of our brothers and sisters are doing right now. There is a small army that puts these chairs up so that we have a place to sit every Sunday morning and don't have to come in here Indian style on the floor. 20 to 25 men who make sure that we have a room that's suitable to worship in, transforming a gym into a worship center week after week after week. We've got a an AV team that oversees our Sunday morning services and our website and our multimedia, making sure that sermons get uploaded and things like that, and the live streams active for people who are unable to be with us. We have a ladies' ministry and a men's ministry that are committed to serving the men and women of our church and outside of our church, helping them know Jesus and know each other better. You help each other move when your family either comes into town or shifts homes within town. We have an army of kids' ministry workers whether it be Sunday school teachers or nursery workers who give their time and energy to the littlest among us, the greatest mission field we have right in our own building, workers on Wednesday nights through Heritage Kids, whether it be Bible or games or crafts or missions or special events, it takes a small Team, uh, actually quite a large team, to pull these ministries off to our children. We have youth ministry and Sunday school girls, our middle school girls' Bible studies. We have grace marriage, which we've recently launched, which 30 couples are involved in in our church. Three different groups launching in the last two weeks, and that takes time and participation and facilitation. And you have thrown yourself in we have a Wednesday night meal team that prepares food for us we have the heritage emergency response team and the team that Brandon has put together to work with our building and utilize it not just in emergency situations but also in terms of security speaking of security we've got teams every single Sunday who monitor our building during services and serve right now keeping us safe and watching out for us We have smaller prayer gatherings all across our community, all across our church, Sunday mornings, ladies once a month, and various spontaneous ones that no doubt occur that we're not even aware of. We have generous sacrificial giving among us, which is able to meet our needs and often above and beyond them through mash offerings and various needs that are made known in the body to which you joyfully and readily jump in and meet the needs. There's work physically on our property that you all help Do Whether it's maintenance or upkeep or repairs or mowing, caring for our building and helping us to be good stewards of all that God has entrusted to us. There's the unseen and ongoing and absolutely vital and necessary work of the church that just consists of encouragement and fellowship and gifts and cards and expressions of love and care. There's people who prepare communion and coffee and host people in their homes and show hospitality and prepare meals for sick and attend funerals, and wa- and have the privilege of walking beside senior saints by visiting them and giving them rides when necessary so they can attend gatherings of the church. We have the privilege of watching God sustain each other through trials and difficulties and miscarriages and stresses and death and job loss and cancer and caring for aging parents and children with special needs. We have... An astounding mission care team that helps our church in caring for the missionaries that we've sent out, whether they be in Mexico or Ireland or Serbia or North Africa or just partnering with other existing ministries in the Dominican Republic and Italy. There's service in local ministry, whether that be in nursing homes or Fifth Street or CareNet or Mentor Kids or Friends of Sinners or St. Benedict's or Young Life. And you are a people, by and large, who read your Bibles and pray and walk with Jesus and fight sin and love your families and bless your workplaces and seek to do good to this community and work for justice and righteousness and share the gospel and adopt children and provide foster care and serve where needed and preserve unity and seek to image God and spread the name and fame of Jesus Christ. Don't think we don't notice. There is evidence of your devotion. And so I want to begin this sermon series with that knowledge full well and encourage those of you who are devoted to excel still more. Galatians 6 acknowledges that as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. There's, there's a very important phrase, as we have opportunity. Not everyone has equal opportunity to be involved in everything that they would even like to be involved in. And we acknowledge that up front. We don't want you to feel guilty about that which you have no opportunity to do. We don't, the, the goal of this series is not the expectation that everyone will be at Everything. The desire, and hear this, the desire is that you would evaluate your life in light of the vision we see in Acts 2, ask yourself, where do I have opportunity to improve, to conform more to this biblical vision, and devote myself afresh to that in an intentional, non-condemning, gospel-centered, and guilt-free way? That's what we want. Where do I have opportunity to improve? And I want to devote myself afresh to that in an intentional, non-condemning, gospel-centered, guilt-free way. And where you don't have opportunity, you should feel no guilt at all. So I think that's an important word to be said on the front end of a series that is designed to cultivate greater devotion to the local church. So this morning, I'm not really going to call us to anything specific um, regarding devotion I'm merely going to hopefully set the series up by looking at Acts chapter 2 and seeing what the Holy Spirit did in these early Christians. We're going to see five steps that the Holy Spirit walked these people through, and I would, I would say walks every true Christian through, because it's his ongoing work, it's the way, the way he works, to bring about a church-centered Christianity. So, if you claim to be a Christian, which is the vast majority of us in this room, I want you to walk through this passage with me and see where you are in this process. One, two, three, four, five. This is the way the Spirit works in the life. This is how He makes a Christian. So, we're going to look at the creation of a church-centered Christian this morning in five steps. And here we go. Number one, good news is preached. The Holy Spirit always creates his people through the gospel message being declared. This is what Peter does. I want you to look back with me at verses 22 through 36. We're going to read them together. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. He's already quoted the prophet Joel and acknowledged that the Holy Spirit being poured out is the fulfillment of that prophecy in Joel chapter 2. And then he turns and exhorts the, the, the crowd there with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he begins in verse 22 talking about Jesus' life and ministry. This is the first step. You need to know what the gospel is. If you don't know what the gospel is, it just means good news. Okay, so look at this. See what the elements are. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know. So the good news is not uh, anything other than a message about a man. Jesus Christ. Who he is. He's a man attested by God with mighty works and wonders that God did through him. Verifying his authenticity as the son of God. Then verse 23 he died. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. cross wasn't an accident. You know who killed Jesus? God killed Jesus. That's who killed Jesus. He was delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. You know who else killed Jesus? Evil men. Look, you crucified him. And killed by the hands of lawless men. This is the great mystery of of the gospel. That God in and through the evil that was being done to his son was accomplishing the salvation of his people through the very act of sin of these men. Verse 24, resurrection. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then he quotes from Psalm 16 the words of David in that psalm, and then applies them to Jesus. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he who both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all Witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what is, what is Peter doing here? He's preaching the gospel from Psalm 16. He's doing what we try to do every single week, which is take a passage of Scripture and open it up and apply it to Jesus. We call it exposition. That's all preaching is. It's taking a passage of Scripture, opening it up, applying it to us, and Jesus, showing how it relates to him. So what we see here are the four elements of the gospel, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' exaltation. That's what the gospel is. It's a message that Jesus has come and lived the life that Adam failed to live and all of us failed to live, which is a life of perfection in obedience to God's law perfectly. That's the positive righteousness that he has earned for us, that net, that require, that, that's the requirement of God for us to get into heaven. We don't just need to be absent of sin. We need to be righteous, which is why Adam was put under a test in the garden to see if he would obey God. Because he not only needed to resist sin, he also needed to obey the Lord positively and actively. Jesus did that for us. He came and lived in our place. He also died in our place, bearing the wrath of God and the punishment that is due our sin. So he achieved our righteousness for us, and he died for our unrighteousness. Then he was raised from the dead as a sign of his victory over death. And God's acceptance of his perfect sacrifice and he was exalted to the right hand of God where he reigns and rules, granting repentance and salvation to his people until the time where he leaves that throne to bring it to earth and rescue us and make the new heavens and new earth a reality. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what was preached. And that's where the creation of a church-centered Christian starts. And it never gets away from that. It starts and continues with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I've said many times, the gospel's good news is not good advice. It's an announcement of what has been done that you can get in on. Not something that you must do in order to earn your way into. It's a big difference. And you'll see how Christ is received here, which is where we get into point number two. So that's point number one good news is preached. Second, Christ is received. Christ is received. And that's where Adam began our reading in verse 37 and where we're going to pick up in the story here. So what kind of impact does this message have on this crowd? Notice, we are told in verse 37 exactly how it impacted them. Now, when they heard this, that is the message about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and exaltation, and their culpability in it, which we all are, because it was our sin that nailed him there. Now, when they heard this, they were cut, cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's where, that's where it starts. That's where the reception of Christ happens. Why do I say Christ is received? Because that's the language of verse 41. Look at verse 41. So those who received his word. So they're receiving what Peter is saying to them. And the reality of that is cutting them deeply down to their heart. This means that they saw the deep personal relevance of what what they were hearing. And they were convicted of their need to respond to it. Until we see our sins as costing Jesus his life, as killing Jesus, that we were the cause of his death, we will not be cut to the heart. But when we see it is my sin that nailed him there, then we will be cut to the heart. This is a deep personal relevance that you contributed to the death of Christ. You know that experience? Know that experience vividly. You may not know the time of that, but if you're a Christian here this morning, that happened to you. You realized it was I who did it. I did it. And you found yourself saying, what do I need to do? What will I do? Well, here's what you have to do. What does Peter tell them? Look at verse 38. Peter said to them, repent repent. Repent. He doesn't say, walk an aisle. He doesn't say, pray a prayer in your seat. He doesn't say, come forward, talk to the pastor. He doesn't say, get baptized yet. We'll talk about that in a minute. He says, repent. What is repentance? Surely, many of you have heard this, but it bears repeating. The Greek word is metanoia, to repent. And that means to Change your mind about something. It's much more than just being sorry, although it's not less than that. It means to completely change your approach, your foundation, and your mind. You've now gone from seeing Jesus a certain way to seeing him the right way. You no longer see him as just, well, he's a good religious teacher. Well, he did some good things. Yeah, he's probably, you know, he means a lot to a lot of people too. He's the Lord. He's the one that I'm going to stand before of on the last day. He's the one who's exalted to God's right hand. He's the one who's defeated death and raised from the dead. He's the one who died on the cross. He's the one who lived a perfect life. He's the one, he's my only hope. That's what it means to repent. You, You have a complete change of mind about who this Jesus is. And then necessarily involved in that is faith. Peter does not call, tell them to believe in Jesus. He says repent, but he says repent because included in repentance is belief. After all, in verse 44, you notice this, he, they don't call them repenters. And all who believe were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple courts together, they broke bread in their homes and received them with glad and sincere hearts. And having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we see here is these were, these were repenters who believed in Jesus. You study the book of Acts, you see that played out again and again. Sometimes Paul or Peter will use the word repent. For the call to respond to the gospel, sometimes it's believe in the Lord Jesus, like he says to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. So it's both. It's repentance and faith, Acts 20. So repentance in part means that we're turning away from our culture's do-it-yourself, self-made, unregulated freedom to be who we want to be and find ourselves and follow our dreams, all those individualistic values that come down to us, from our culture and that permeate our culture and rub against the gospel and make it hard to be the church rather it calls us to a whole new life. Peter says repent, turn away, do a 180, turn completely away from the life that you were living to a life now that seeks to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a that's a that's a heavy price. That's a pretty hard call. Well, it's a hard call because of who's who who we're responding to. We're responding to the Lord and King of the universe. C.S. Lewis said, I didn't come to Christ because he makes life easy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. (laughs) If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. End quote. We do people no service when when we try to lower the bar. When we say, no, this doesn't demand your whole life. It does demand your whole life. To be a disciple of Jesus is to deny yourself, take up your cross, be subject to persecution, give up the creature comforts of home, forsake the priority of family, be willing to give up all material possessions, be crucified with Christ, embrace the messiness of community, bear with one another in love, bear one another's burdens, work for a seemingly impossible unity, be a community of Christ followers, by trading the comfortable, me-centric existence for danger, difficulty, and discomfort of all sorts. But it's the best trade you could ever make. Because in that loss is where we find life and gain. In that sacrifice... We find life in that giving. We find blessing in that denial. We find that we are received in that messiness. We are reordered, and in that subjection, we are set free. So Peter tells them that if they repent and believe, that they will receive two promises. Look at verse 38 again. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins... and and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's the wonderful promise. This is the great summary of what it means to become a Christian. When we become a Christian, there is something legal that happens outside of us. That is, we are forgiven of all of our sins and accepted as perfect in God's sight, our record being pardoned and covered. But there's also something that happens inside of us. We get the new life of the Spirit, a new power directed from God that begins to grow within us. We begin to get changed on the inside, even while the verdict on the outside is fixed. So in summary, here's the message. We got two events, really four events, but Christ's life, death, resurrection, exaltation. And it's attested by the Bible and historical witnesses to the resurrection that Peter alludes to here. On the basis of which God makes two promises, forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit on two conditions, repentance and faith. We have no liberty to change any of that. That's the apostolic gospel. That's the, Christ, that's the gospel that Christ himself told us to preach. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, received by faith and repentance, granting forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Have you experienced that this morning? Everybody's heard the good news. We've all passed through step one. Have you passed through step two? Have you received Jesus Christ? That is, have you exercised personal faith in Christ, repented of your sins, turning away from them, and receiving forgiveness for those sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit? If not, that's where you are. That's what you need to do right now. That's step two can't go any further in in these lists until you do that. That's first. Hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel. All right? So that's the second part. That's step two. Let's go on to step three. Because the vast majority of the people in this room have done that. You've heard the gospel. You've responded to the gospel. You've been cut to the heart. You've repented. You've believed. You've received forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now what does Peter call them to do? Number three. Disciples are baptized. Disciples are baptized. You see that in verse 38? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then verse 41, second half. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Baptism is not the Baptist church's idea okay? It's Jesus' idea, all right? So, disciples who profess Christ, who repent of sin, who want to follow him, who've received forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit, are baptized. Now, what is baptism? Baptism, listen to this carefully, baptism is the church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ, that he's on team Jesus, by immersing him or her in water, and it's the believer's act of publicly committing himself or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking them off from the world. That's what baptism is. It has to do with a believer publicly identifying with Jesus and the church recognizing that and acknowledging that, and portraying that. It's the believer committing himself publicly to Jesus, coming out of the closet of just repenting and you know, believing and gifting the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Bible knows no secret Christians. We all go public, and the way we go public is baptism. We say, hey, I'm with Jesus. I want everybody to know it. Everybody to know it. And we do this because this is what Jesus told us to do. Matthew 28, 18-20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples, baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, if you claim to follow Jesus, but you've not been baptized, that should be enough right there. That's enough. Jesus told you to do it. Jesus commands baptism, so go do it. If you are a repenting, leaving Forgiven, spirit-indwelt person who has never been baptized, you should be baptized. If you were baptized as an infant before you were a believer, you need to be biblically baptized. If you were baptized thinking you were a believer but later realized you weren't, you need to be baptized. Because baptism here is post-repentance. It's post-forgiveness. It's post-reception of the Holy Spirit. If you said, I never had the Holy Spirit then. I wasn't forgiven. I lived 25 years of my life as though God didn't exist, but I was baptized at six. You need to be baptized. You weren't biblically baptized. Or if you're baptized in a church that completely denies the gospel, that's not even a church, you need to be baptized. not saying you were baptized in a church that was weak and anemic. There's lots of churches like that. We, we all have, we have our own weaknesses, but a church that completely denies the gospel and doesn't preach that Jesus lived and died and raised, was raised from the dead and just sort of a ceremony that everybody does, that, that's not baptism. So if you're still hesitant, let me highlight two benefits, because maybe there's some people out here who are, are walking with Jesus, professing Jesus, loving Jesus, wanting to follow Jesus, wanting to be obedient to Jesus, but are hesitant about baptism. Let me give you two benefits. Of, of baptism. Number one, confessing your faith publicly strengthens your faith. Baptism is an open declaration that you belong to Jesus. Do you want to know if you belong to Jesus? Then tell the world. If you're reluctant to openly declare yourself a follower of Jesus, then baptism is what you most need to do to strengthen that reality that I am his. If you try to keep your faith private, it will wither and die. Like our bodies, faith is strengthened by obedience. I'm going to do it because Jesus told me to do it. He's my Lord. He's my master. I don't care what I look like when I come up out of the water. The lights are dim anyway. Everybody's just clapping and happy. They're not concerned about what you look like. They're just thankful they have a brother and sister in Christ. So baptism is an exercise of faith, and it'll strengthen faith as you obey Jesus and do it. Number two, it provides a ready-made platform for evangelism. Do you want your family to know Christ, unbaptized believer? You are helping your family because... Most many family and friends who wouldn't otherwise attend church would readily attend a baptism. And this gives you an opportunity to share the gospel with your friends and your family and your coworkers in a very public and illustrative way. I'm with Jesus. So it's, it's just this great platform for declaring who Jesus is and what he does in people's lives. Perhaps a greater platform than any other platform we have. But you might be objecting. Well, why do I need to make a big fuss about this? I mean, isn't faith something personal and private? Isn't it enough that I trust Jesus? I mean, God knows my heart, and baptism doesn't save anybody. I didn't say any of that. But Jesus did say that he doesn't have any private followers. Whoever acknowledges me before men, Matthew 10, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. If you're scared to acknowledge Jesus before men is he your Lord? Luke 9, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed. That's the way Jesus speaks to us. I can remember when I was a 15-year-old kid coming out of a very unchurched background, no knowledge, received the gospel. Um, I didn't know anything about anything. I, I, I was in my first Sunday school class and they asked me, what was uh, the, the, the Sunday school class was me and my brother. It was gigantic. It had two people in it with a dentist teaching us. And he sat down in the basement of this old dingy lodge hall where I was a new convert meeting with this guy. And he said, hey, just to get an idea of where you guys are with your understanding of the Bible, what event separates the Old Testament and the New Testament? I didn't know what an Old Testament and New Testament was. I had no idea what anything about that was. I didn't know what, uh, what, what event. I said, didn't God make the world or something? And he's like, yeah, that's at the beginning of the Bible. It's not really in the middle. And he's very patient with us and taught us. But I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about baptism. I got approached about five months after I would professed Christ. Pastor sat down with me, said, hey, Mark, have you, ever, have you ever thought about being baptized? I'm like, what's that? He said, it's where we, we recognize that you're a disciple of Jesus and you go public with that. You tell everybody else where we dip you down in the water and you explain what it was. You're being buried with Christ in baptism, being raised to walk in newness of life. It's a sign and a symbol of, of, of what God's done in your life. And you're publicly committing yourself to Christ and his people. Like, okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. And then, but when I said that, I also had this hesitation. Like, I don't, I don't know about that. It's kind of scary, you know? And then, and, uh. And then just by virtue of what I was reading in the Bible that week, I came to those passages that I quoted you in Matthew 10. I think I'd started reading through the Gospels or something and came across that passage. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. That sealed it. I want to be acknowledged by Jesus on that last day. I want Jesus to say, hey, here's one of mine. And what I needed to do was say, hey, he's mine here in this life through baptism. And so that's, that led me over the hump and we got in a little church and there was a little handful of believers there and I was baptized in September of 1996 so that's the third step and we're going to move quickly through the last two here so we've looked at good news is preached there's a first step Christ is received then disciples are baptized and if you haven't been baptized but you're a professing believer in Christ you should speak to one of the pastors um, about that number four Disciples are added to the church. Disciples are added to the church. You see that in verse 41? So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then verse 47, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you've got this number number. This group of people, we call it the church, it's it's the disciples of Christ who had already publicly identified with him. And then the Lord starts adding people to them, adding people to the membership of that church in Jerusalem. And who did they add? They added disciples who had believed, people who had heard the word and received it and were baptized. They didn't baptize them without adding them to the church. And they didn't add them to the church unless they'd already heard about Christ, received Christ, and been baptized. That's how people get added into the church. It's through baptism. It's the front door in. And then you get added into the church. So it's not like baptism is something that's done apart from the church. It's done in the context of the church. With a view to adding people to the church. Sam Alberry says, It's impossible to be in Christ and not belong to others. A Christian, by definition, has a connection with and a responsibility to other Christians. You cannot claim Christ and avoid his people because this is what the disciples did. They were baptized and they were added. Scott Saul says, membership in a local church means joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that through Jesus embarks on a journey toward a better future together. And I would say a perfect future. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of the Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. So what's my point here is that we're added to imperfect churches. We're imperfect people being added to imperfect churches. We're imperfect selves adding ourselves to other imperfect selves seeking a better future together, and we must not love our dream of this great Christian community that doesn't exist more than we love the actual Christian community that's in front of us, because as Bonhoeffer says, if we do that, we destroy the community. So part of unifying the community and being a blessing to the community is discarding our dream church and embracing our real church. No matter our intentions, may be they ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial, Bonhoeffer says. So disciples get added to an imperfect church. Those are the only kinds that exist, we're right there with them, big time imperfect. Charles Spurgeon said, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I'd found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would have been a perfect church. It would not, be, not have been a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it's the dearest place on earth to us. Amen. End quote. So that's, that's what happened to these disciples. They were receiving the word, baptized, and added. Fifth and final step. Disciples are devoted to the church. Notice verses 41 and 42 again. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, verse 42, and they devoted themselves. They didn't just put their name on a membership roll somewhere and never show up at church. They devoted themselves to the church that they became a member of through their reception of Christ and baptism in his name. Good news was preached, they received the word, they were baptized, they were added to the church, and then they devoted themselves to The church. They entered into this whole new mode of existence. They wanted to do this. It wasn't a guilt trip. It was a response of the Holy Spirit's work in their life. They didn't have to be forced. You don't have to tell people who have spiritual life to love the people of God. They don't come together as a response to command or duty first. As an, but they come together as an evidence that they're saved. What does devoted mean? What does this word devoted mean? It means to adhere to, to persist in, to give constant attention to, to give sustained attention and effort toward, to be loyal to. It's an active word that requires work. It's hard to be devoted it's actually literally translated, they were continually devoting themselves to. The point is that these were not occasional activities, but rather they were central commitments of these Christians' lives. Now, in case you can't tell, just culturally speaking, devoted probably is not going to come up on any word of the year list this year. Right? It's not a really super popular word. We are the occasional generation. We are not the devoted generation devotion is not attractive we'll see if that works out for me this week just kind of keeping my plans loose we're not big on I'm gonna do this this week and next week and every week for the rest of my life that's not our culture I'm gonna do this week week the same thing as next week the same thing as next week the same thing as next week till Jesus comes back or I die that's devotion We need to recover a vision of the glory of plotting in the Christian life. Faithful, do it every day till you die. Kevin DeYoung says, What we need are fewer revolutionaries and a few more plotting visionaries. That's my dream for the church, he says. A multitude of faithful, risk-taking plotters. The best churches are full of gospel-saturated people holding tenaciously to a vision of godly obedience and God's glory and pursuing that godliness and glory with relentless, often unnoticed, plodding consistency. Perhaps we struggle with devotion because we're in a culture that's bowing right now to the altar of FOMO and YOLO. You know what that means, right? The kids all know. FOMO, fear of missing out. That's the altar we're sacrificing our lives to. Don't want to miss out, so keep my commitments loose. Something else might come up that's more exciting. Or you you only live once. Got to get it all in right now. Those are so anti Christian. You are not missing out. If you're in Christ and the things that you're devoting yourself to are the things that you should be devoting yourself to in Christ, you're not missing anything that's worthwhile. And it's not true. You don't live once. You live forever. So make your decisions about what's going to make you happy in 10 trillion years. Do you know one of the reasons I think that we can't devote ourselves and do this plotting consistency and we get so easily bored and and restless is because we're immature, or actually, put a different way, we're not mature enough. What do I mean by that? Listen to this G.K. Chesterton quote. I came across this this week and thought it was profound. He says, a child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Why does a child just do that? Is it because they're not alive? They're doing the same thing over and over and over again. Is it because they're not? No, they're very much alive. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exist in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough To exist in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning. Do it again to the sun. And every evening do it again to the moon. He does the same thing every day. It may not be automatic necessity. That makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately. But has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Monotony. Repeating the same thing over and over again. Observing the Lord's death until He comes. Over and over again. Attending church over And over again, reading your Bible over and over again, praying over and over again and devoting yourself to a long obedience in the same direction is the sign of greatest Christ likeness. It's the sign of greatest maturity. Not the person who has to jump here, there, there, there to get their spiritual kick every five seconds. That is immature. The Christian life is the boring, redundant, risk taking, glorious church life. That's what it is. If the Christian life is the church life, then you as a baptized believer and church member have a responsibility. And with this, I close. You are like a shareholder in Christ's great gospel ministry corporation. That's what every baptized believing member of a local church is. You're a shareholder in the kingdom. Now, what do good shareholders do? They study their company. They study their investment. They study the market, they study competition, they want to make the most out of their investment. And you, Christian, have invested your whole life in the gospel. The purpose of this series is to help us maximize the health and kingdom profitability of our lives and the life of this local congregation for God's glorious gospel ends. So may he help us and enable us to be devoted to this vision together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've gotten to spend considering, in in many ways, the basics and foundational truths of your word, what it means to know the gospel, believe the gospel, receive the gospel, follow you in baptism, be added to the membership of the church, be devoted to the local church. Would you bless us as we embark upon this journey together to look back at our roots, to look back at our family tree, to study our genealogy, and see where we come from, that we might recover this vision, this imperfect, glorious vision, so that we might press more and more into conformity to your will for our lives. So work in all of our lives. All of us are at different places, in different seasons, with different opportunities. Would you just speak to us by your Spirit and apply this uh, as you would have it, in great freedom and joy and with new resolve to please you in all things and desire your glory above all else. So may you grant that to us as we stand and sing now in Jesus' name.